Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. On January 20th, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn in as the new president and vice president of the United States. Throughout the election, Biden and Harris spoke out forcefully about public health, health equity, and racial justice. But now is a time when organizations that prioritize these goals will be pushing the new administration to move from rhetoric toward results. I'm Ruben Gantu of Prevention Institute, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Sana Shahimi, who is Prevention Institute's Director of Policy and Advocacy and is based in Washington, DC. Welcome, Sana. It's great to have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Ruben. It's always great to be in conversation with you. Sana, I'm just going to go ahead and dive in. And I know you've taken a close look at the priorities of the Biden-Harris administration, and I'm wondering how you're feeling about them and how much they overlap with Prevention Institute's priorities. I see a lot of great overlap in the priorities that the Biden-Harris administration have identified. Their priorities obviously start with their emphasis on COVID-19, um, but it also includes a strong grounding in addressing racial equity as a core priority. And they've already talked about the need to strengthen and rebuild the public health infrastructure. The way that they're talking about an economic recovery is really rooted in addressing also the harms of growing income inequality. And finally, we're back to an administration that is really elevating the focus on combating climate change. So all of this taken together means um, that I think we're in a really good place to advance our own priorities. There's a lot of talk about the new administration's first 100 days. What would you say is the most important for the new administration to do immediately in terms of public health prevention, health equity, and racial justice? We've already seen some action by the administration, including the 17 executive orders that were signed on the day of the inauguration. So not even the first full day of the new administration. And we can include a link to those as well in the show notes. Some of the ones that stand out for us are rescinding the previous executive order that prevented the federal government and federal contractors from holding trainings on racial equity, diversity, and inclusion. So that has already been rescinded. There's an executive order that has designated the head of the Domestic Policy Council, Susan Rice, as the leader of an effort requiring all federal agencies to make rooting out systemic racism, in quotes, central to their effort. And we're going to see some initial outcomes from that within the first 200 days, um, actually. Um, They've already taken action to reinforce Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to make clear that the federal government does not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender. 
There's been an executive order to extend the federal eviction moratorium and extend the deferment of federal student loan payments. We've also reinstated the ties with the World Health Organization. And then there's several executive orders pertaining to immigration that are really important, um, including revoking the plan by the previous administration to exclude non-citizens from the 2020 census count and bolstering the deferred action for childhood arrivals program and putting forth legislation that would create a path for citizenship and also revoking the so-called uh, Muslim travel ban. So we've already seen a lot of action um, that is benefiting public health and is also benefiting racial justice and health equity. And what we're looking for in the remainder of the 100 days are really clear actions related to undoing other harmful regulatory and rules changes that were put in place by the previous administration that are going to take a little bit more time to undo. So including, for example, the public charge rule. And what we're going to be looking for is to make sure that this is not simply a, a box checking exercise about undoing previous harms and that it's also really about replacing those harmful rules with ones that are even stronger in the first place. And we're going to be paying careful attention to how the administration is working with Congress on comprehensive COVID relief and recovery efforts, which most of which requires congressional passage. What are the policy changes then that you'd prioritize for the longer term with the new administration? Well, we really want to see longer term investments in the community factors that shape health, safety, and well-being. And we want those investments to be sustainable. We want them to be bold. And we want them to be really transformative. And we also want significant investments in cultivating a diverse, well-resourced, community-grounded public health workforce where those that are doing public health, what we consider public health work, come from the communities that they serve and where this becomes a more viable career path um, for more community leaders and residents whose everyday work is in fact benefiting the health, safety, and well-being of their communities. We have a lot of interest around specific programs at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, that we'd like to see uh, increased, including the racial and ethnic approaches to community health program. And we'd like to see increased funding to that program so that more community-based grantees can receive funding. We join others in a commitment to really seeing movement in how we reimagine community safety and how we hold current systems accountable for producing racist, violent, and oppressive uh, outcomes. And practically speaking, this reimagination 
means investing in policies and practices that truly ensure community safety and well-being for those who have suffered. So community-based crisis supports, restorative justice practices, uh, culturally rooted mental health supports, and there's action that the administration and the Congress can, uh, significant action that they can take to achieve that. And we'd like to see both public health departments and communities better resource to implement and participate in comprehensive community efforts to address and prevent multiple forms of violence. Um, and we'd really like to see reforms that strengthen our underlying democracy, including voting rights protections. And um, one particular piece of legislation right now that could do that is HR1, the For the People Act that includes voting rights protections and also preventing the systemic voting disenfranchisement that we know occurs in many communities of color. And the reason we're adding uh, democracy reforms to our list of priorities that we'd like to see move forward is because if, you know, if 2020 and um, the early part of 2021 have taught us everything, it's that our democracy and our health and well-being are so closely intertwined. And actually, Ruben, I'd love to ask you a question because in your day-to-day -day work, you focus on mental health and well-being. What do you think is most important for the new administration and Congress to do in those areas? That's a great question, Sana. And I see a couple of different threads here that, that I think are important. First of all, and especially because of the pandemic, we're seeing an increase in social isolation, which has huge impacts on mental health and well-being. And more often for folks that are older adults, people living in rural areas, LGBTQ communities, and other folks that have also been intentionally marginalized. Some studies have even shown that being socially isolated is just as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or twice as harmful to physical and mental health as obesity is. And some of our partners, like the Coalition to End Social Isolation and Loneliness and others are working on policy solutions to address isolation and promote connectedness. Strategies like designing public spaces that are welcoming to all people, making sure the transportation systems are designed to bring people together, developing housing that makes community building easier. All of these things can go a long way to addressing social isolation. And with increasing rates of opioid and other substance use in the last year especially, these kinds of strategies can really help to mitigate this and prevent this and other diseases of despair that we've heard about recently. Also, over the last four years, and Again, especially during the pandemic, we've seen an uptick in trauma of all kinds. Things like family separations, climate-related disasters, racially motivated violence. And we need to invest in a comprehensive approach to preventing trauma at both the individual level, so with the folks who are dealing with trauma and violence, and also at the community level by looking at kind of the, the conditions, the things around us that, that feed into trauma. Because of the racial justice actions that we saw in the summer and fall of 2020, more people than ever really know what we mean now when we talk about structural or systemic racism. 
And this is now a great opportunity to really examine our systems and our way of doing things, whether it's government agencies, community organizations, or what have you, and look at them with an eye toward what needs to be undone about the way they're operating and rebuilding them so that they can really help to improve conditions for those most vulnerable among us. One important first step was something that you mentioned earlier, where the president rescinded the executive order that kind of limited trainings around racial equity. And that's really helped to reaffirm the government's commitment to addressing racism and implicit bias across departments and agencies. So that was really great. And then finally, I can't talk about this without talking about healing. And I think healing is going to be more important than ever. We've seen growing rifts across many parts of our lives, across systems, between residents and systems, and among even families and communities. And we need to be able to come together and heal so that we can move forward together. And things like the recent peaceful protests for racial justice last year are really a a strong start to that healing process, I feel. Ruben, can you also talk about the importance of trust in moving forward a comprehensive and progressive policy agenda and in achieving the outcomes that you just mentioned? Over the last four years, especially over this last year, as we dealt with the pandemic, we've seen public health and science come under attack, be maligned, be politicized. And now there's a really strong opportunity to rebuild and reestablish trust, particularly at agencies like CDC, which we've been talking about. Through our work with community groups like our Making Connections Initiative and others, we've heard that trust is what we call a pillar of well-being, something that's really important for people and communities to be able to flourish and to be healthy and to feel safe. And without that trust, we've seen how we've wasted opportunities to address the pandemic quickly and effectively. Our new incoming leadership in the country really have to start from within agencies themselves to start rebuilding that trust and the belief that science and public health will be heard, believed, and I guess even insulated from politics. And from there, they can work to restore confidence among the public so that we can have a stronger better funded public infrastructure, public health infrastructure to support all of us, especially right now. And then more broadly, one of the things that I've seen the administration do that I think really helps to build that trust is putting into place one of the most diverse cabinets that we've ever had. And I think just the fact that people can see themselves reflected in that cabinet and reflected in that leadership, you know, across racial and ethnic lines, across gender, sexual orientation, and see themselves there, that's something that I think is going to be, that's going to help to rebuild trust among people in government and in public health and in science and in everything that's going to help us to build a stronger, more equitable country. Sana, which of the policy changes we've been talking about do you think will really be possible with the Senate being split 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats? It's hard to predict at this point what will be doable with the filibuster still in place. But one vehicle that can be used is the budget reconciliation process. So 
in addition to what the Biden-Harris administration can do using uh, executive orders at the congressional level, the budget reconciliation process allows passage of legislation related to taxing and spending with a simple majority. So for example, the Affordable Care Act was actually passed uh, using the budget reconciliation process. So it is definitely possible to use that budget tool to, to pass legislation that has significant impact. So some of the COVID relief proposals announced by the administration could be bundled into a budget reconciliation bill, including the expanded unemployment assistance, raising the federal minimum wage could probably be included in budget reconciliation, providing aid to local and state government could be part of that process. And then later on, uh, a second budget reconciliation bill could be passed related to an infrastructure package. So there are some possibilities there and, and we'll have a better sense of what else can pass such a narrowly divided Senate once we have a little bit more time under our belt. But what's really important to remember is that as advocates and organizations that care about health, safety, well-being through a racial justice and health equity lens, we should really continue to push for the policies and investments that we should have, not just push for those that we think can get passed. Because it is by putting forth bold and transformative ideas that we begin to, over time, transform the narrative of what is possible. Sana, what are you most hopeful about when you think about the Biden-Harris administration? And is, the, is there anything that you're worried about as well? I'm hopeful about shifting from a frame that was primarily in opposition to what was being proposed by, um, by the previous administration to being in a position of putting out a clear and strong vision of, of what we want. There's also challenge in that because it's, it is always easier to say what you don't want than it is to really clearly articulate what you, what you do want. I do have some concerns that the desire to return to normal, quote unquote, is going to lead to more pragmatism than boldness. Yes, there's been a change in administration. Yes, we have a new Congress. And it is still up to all of us to hold the administration accountable. And we're not always going to be in agreement with their policies and actions, which is perfectly okay. And it is up to each and every one of us to hold them accountable and to continue to push for ever more progressive and bold um, actions that are going to benefit health, safety, and well-being. Sana, what do 
policy and advocacy staff people like you do? My role first and foremost is really to bring all of the practice learnings and innovations that emerge from the day-to-day -day work that you, Ruben, and our other colleagues at PI are doing directly in and with communities, whether it's the work that grows out of our communities of practice or the work that we do with local and state health departments or other public health organizations and networks. So my role is to bring those learnings, bring those assets and bring those needs and share them with both my colleagues in DC and with federal policymakers. Secondly, my role is really to build relationships with other advocates and organizational partners because none of this work is done alone and we all benefit tremendously from being part of networks of advocates that are aligned on similar issues where we can really push and learn from each other and then really amplify our shared perspectives and priorities at the at the federal level and then the third part is bringing all of that together and sharing all of that with federal decision makers and their staff. What can people outside of DC do to support this work? There's actually a ton that people outside of DC can and should do. Policymakers are ultimately most interested in the priorities and experiences of their own constituents. So sharing your own prevention successes and challenges and opportunities and, and painting a clear picture of assets in your communities and how to build on those assets and address community needs is very, very important. As is sharing what your federal policy priorities are with advocates that are in DC if your organization doesn't have a direct DC presence. What federal policy changes would help benefit your work on the ground? Ruben, you work with many of our communities of practice on a day-to-day -day basis. Is there anything else you would add based on your experience with those groups about what they can do? I think, I think when I think about that question, Sana, it's a great question. A lot of them, a lot of them are very localized in the work that they're doing, right? So they, they work, in their own their own city or their own town their own county and try to affect change from that level and and when people ask for advice around how can they how can they start getting involved in policy i i, I reiterate and ask ask them the same kinds of things that you just did you know what is it that's going to improve conditions for folks in your community for the people that you work with and start there start thinking about what it is people need what will help make their lives easier and help to make 
the healthy choice, the easy choice for, for folks. And a lot of times they're able to identify things like, you know, we need another grocery store in our neighborhood or we need bus routes that go in a certain direction to help connect us to, to things and resources that, that we need to get to. And then I asked them, do you know an elected official or do you know somebody who works for an elected official or do you know somebody who knows somebody? And a lot of times they do and they've got those connections already that they didn't even realize that they could leverage to try to make change happen at a local level. And a lot of times those local level changes are the changes that then can and will bubble up a lot of times to have a broader impact at the county level, the state level, and even at the federal level. And that's the point. And I always also counsel them kind of going back to something you mentioned earlier, that they really need to be bold and that they really need to work toward those things that they feel need to happen and should happen and not just be limited by what they think is acceptable by folks. Because by putting that bold vision out there, like you said, it really does change the narrative and changes the discussion so that it kind of sets a goal. Even if a proposal or a piece of legislation doesn't pass the first time around, you've put it out there as a longer term goal for what we want to see happen. You know, it moves the goalpost. Sana, is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Yes, I've been thinking a lot, as I'm sure everyone who watched, either watched the inauguration or was later told that if, if nothing else, they should uh, watch and listen to uh, poet Amanda Gorman recite her inaugural poem. And there's two particular lines that really stood out to me from a policy perspective in terms of what's going to guide Prevention Institute's policy and advocacy this year and moving forward. And it is the notion of even as we tired, we tried, and we will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be. That is going to be the, the resounding theme for us moving forward. We are going to try everything we can. We are going to push and never stop pushing. And we are going to reject the notion that we should ever go back to what was once normal. How about for you, Ruben? Anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? I think what I would add is we're really excited about new opportunity right now, and we really need to be very clear in our focus, clear in our goals, what we want to see, what we want to achieve, and also recognize that although it's, it was great to see so many things happen on you know, the, the actual day of the inauguration with all of the executive orders that the president signed, I think we also need to make sure that we're looking and, and thinking about the longer, the longer game here as well. And think of those long-term goals, change the narrative, be bold, make sure that we're strong in what we want to do and, and have that conviction to kind of see it through. Thanks so much for spending time with us to, to talk about this really important topic today, Sana. We will also include in the show notes a link to a 
policy and advocacy webinar that, that you and I did that kind of explains the policy making process and how people can get involved in, in policy and advocacy work as well. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T.